Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Field Report, the Spotlight Series. In this series, the students of the 2023 NATO Field School will take the time to shine a light on crucial issues within the realm of security and defense. As we navigate the complex landscape of current global challenges, the Spotlight Series will bring in-depth discussions, first-hand experience, and expert analysis to get to the heart of pivotal issues in the world today. So, let's take a moment to slow down and shine a light on critical issues shaping the landscape of security and defense in this episode of the Field Reports Spotlight Series. Hello and welcome to the Field Report. In this episode, we will be using an open debate format to discuss two things. First, how Canada not reaching NATO's 2% GDP target for military spending affects the Canadian Armed Forces and members of the Canadian Armed Forces. And secondly, how the culture within the Canadian Armed Forces informs Canada's role, reputation, and image within NATO. To discuss with us today, we have four students from the NATO Field School. Hey, Xander. Thank you for having me. My name is Azali Adam, and I go to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. I study political science with a minor in international relations, and I'm also currently a member of the Royal Canadian Navy Reserves. Uh, I am a non-commissioned member, Sailor First Class. Hi, Xander. I'm Piper, and I go to St. Mary's University in Halifax. I'm going into my fourth year uh, majoring political science and minoring in philosophy. And I was a student on the 2023 NATO Field School this year. Hey, I'm Alexa Meyerley. I'm going into my third year as a political science and history student at Simon Fraser University. And I was also a participant of the 2023 NATO Field School. Hey, Xander. I'm Mackenzie Noss from the Royal Military College of Canada um, over in Kingston, Ontario. I'm going into my fourth year studying political science and um, I'm a future officer in the CAF. So we are glad to have two people here today who are members of the Canadian Armed Forces. So Azali and Mackenzie, I'd just like to ask you, you know, how did you get started in the Canadian Armed Forces? Hey, Xander. Yeah, um, actually, when I started the Canadian Armed Forces, it began when I was a lot younger. I was fortunate enough to join the Canadian uh, Army Cadet Program when I was 12. I followed through that until I was 18, and then I joined... Uh, in 2019, April, I joined the Royal Canadian Navy Reserve, so I can do that part-time while I'm at the University of British Columbia. And uh, I'm a port inspection diver at Vancouver, so I specialize in underwater searches and mainly just diving-related tasks. So I've been doing that for four years now. I've been able to travel across Canada, and uh, I love every moment of it. It's pretty cool. Hey, Xander. Yeah, so I took a little bit of a different route uh, in comparison to Azali's way into the forces. Um, I joined the Canadian Armed Forces when I had just turned 18. Um, I'm currently finishing the ROTP program, which is the uh, regular officer training program. And so I'm doing my four-year degree at RMC, um, which is the military college over in Kingston, Ontario. And upon completion of my degree, I will complete my phase training to become an armored officer. Yeah, so a little bit different than Azali, but still a super exciting route. And it's allowed me, you know, like Azali, to 
um, travel across Canada and and now parts of Europe and and really gain some valuable leadership experience, which is super beneficial. Well, thank you everybody for your introductions. Now let's get into the debate. Let's get right into the juicy stuff. So first of all, let's start with the first question. How does Canada not reaching NATO's 2% GDP target for military spending affect the Canadian Armed Forces and members of the Canadian Armed Forces? For context, Canada spends about 1.29% of its GDP on military spending, though it is reported that Canada has been spending a considerable amount of time to lobby NATO to broaden its definition of what counts as military spending. Any thoughts on how Canada's GDP uh, spending not reaching that 2% threshold affects the Canadian Armed Forces and members of the Canadian Armed Forces. You know, at the college, we've gotten a lot of FaceTime and exchange opportunities uh, with the American military academies. And you can kind of see the difference just even at the college level, um, the different amount of resources and different equipment that they have over there versus, I guess, what we have here in Canada is you can kind of see that that difference in the gap that we have just in terms of spending and, and just the, the opportunities and what um, we can afford to do, I guess, at the college level. And even in terms of training, you know, you see it a little bit even at the training level. And, you know, the more you discuss with higher ups and people who have been in the forces for a little while longer than you, um, you can kind of start to to hear. And there's some small hints about, you know, how, spending plays an important role and kind of how the lack of spending um, definitely has an impact on operational readiness. So being a civilian, it was this field school that showed me the behind the scenes of the day-to-day impacts of uh, a smaller defense budget and how that looks for Canadian Armed Forces members. There seems to be, and rightly so, a lot of frustration with how they are able to perform their duties and their jobs compared to their co-workers from other nations. So with that being the case, it certainly can cause an issue with morale, from my perspective at least, and just trying to understand how you can work with such limited resources and make the best of those limited resources, which I think that our um, Canadian Armed Forces members are able to do quite well they seem to be resilient in face of this lack of defense spending and a lack of resources given to them. But that being said, that does, that's not an excuse to not continue to provide resources and to make their job more efficient, more effective, and maybe even just a bit easier just to have these resources set aside for them. Um, I wanted to touch on the, that lack of morale that Piper mentioned, and that was something from a civilian perspective that you really saw up close and personal at Camp Adagi, um, where many um, CAF members mentioned that um, Canadian equipment just wasn't sufficient and that many members found themselves secretly purchasing their own gear, um, which are sort of these jarring stories that you don't really hear about back home in Canada. And I know that we're sort of enlightening to hear um, up close um, during the field school. Actually, interesting, Alexa, you mentioned Camp Adagi there. And the new field school went to Camp Adagi in Latvia, and we saw Canada operating as a framework nation there. How would all of you summarize the experience, and how did it inform your perspective on Canada and GDP spending? Did you have the same takeaway as Alexa? Did you feel like it showed kind of 
a problem with the uh, procurement of gear and weapons? Or did you take away something else? Did you think it showed that Canada was actually doing a lot in Latvia and, you know, they came across the world to, to, to work there? You know, after our trip up to Campadazi, uh, up in Latvia, you know, we really got to see firsthand uh, Canada's overall contribution up in Latvia and, you know, interact with Canadian officers and even officers and, and military members from other nations and kind of talk to them and see their perspective of Canadians and things like that. And I think kind of tying into what Alexa said, you know, having spoken to one of the young Canadian officers who was over there, um, there is, you know, a lack of proper and functioning equipment um, that could optimize, I guess, Canadian effectiveness. Um, I think as it is now, is there there's so much room for improvement up up in Latvia with regards to Canadian equipment. And, you know, realistically, I think an increase in spending could help fix kind of, I guess we could call those deficiencies in terms of, of um, proper and functioning equipment. I just find it interesting. So recently in the Vilnius summit, it was stated or pledged in a way by Canada that they're planning to increase their defense spending to accomplish that long discussed brigade upgrade from the battle group in Latvia. So I thought that that was an interesting point. I mean, really, isn't it somewhat unfair to hold things against Canada when we have to transport things across the world, you know? Across an ocean, logistically, it's a much more difficult task than any European nation would actually have, kind of bringing things to a state like Latvia or any other uh, state within NATO. And the only comparable state would be the United States, which evidently has much more money to pull from for those logistical tasks. So would it not be a little bit of a super high expectation to hold Canada to those same standards? Very interesting argument there, Xander. I know that Canada has that disadvantage of being far away from European security and being away from Europe. So transferring over all over our logistical military equipment and our troops over is definitely a more significant challenge compared to our European allies. However, we have to ask ourselves sometimes that what it takes to contribute to European security and that while you can obviously compare ourselves to the United States, that Canada also wants a voice in foreign policy. And to do that, we need to contribute to European security where we can. So while you're right that Canada has been very fortunate enough to be far away from the conflict, what's happening right now in Ukraine, that we still need to hold up our end in ensuring European security. What I could say is Canada did commit to the transatlantic alliance at its foundation because it saw the value in this relationship. And a perspective we heard very keenly in Latvia and at Campadagi is that Canada doesn't meet that spending goal. And it's a point of contention, um, admittedly. And Latvia does um, meet its spending goal, despite it being a significant difficulty to them as a small state. So there is an expected amount of give and take and difficulties associated in being a part of such a large alliance. And we really need to ask ourselves, if we want a stake in European security, what are we willing to give into that, even if there are expected difficulties, such as transportation or you know, defending um, a continent that is so far away from us. Um, it is reciprocal, and we need to remember that in the long run. Yeah, so just to build off of what Alexa and Nazali were talking about, European security is also Canadian security. From our understanding, at least through the field school, it becomes clear that Canada's military, as it is now with the lack of defense spending, would not be strong enough to, to defend itself on its own. 
So upholding our side of the bargain and improving security across the alliance, both in North America and in Europe, is going to be a really crucial thing to continue to increase our own defense. And so that's another important aspect with increasing security in Europe. Not only are we generally protecting um, the alliance and, and ourselves, but upholding that bargain so that help is there when we need it, because we need this alliance. Canada needs it to, to defend itself. Well, one kind of interesting thing in these discussions with you know military spending and where Canada is in regard to spending, the idea of where the spending is being used. Now, we've had a couple speakers in the NATO field school kind of say, well, sure, 2%, it is a substantial number. So we think that spending actually matters more on where the spending is used. Do you think that this argument helps the Canadian government's case when it's under fire from allies? Or do you think it doesn't really help the Canadian government's case there? Do you think it actually makes them look less effective? This argument that Canada has put forward about the 2% being more or less redundant as long as the funding that is being given is given to the right areas and is being spent in the right ways, the most efficient ways in the right places. But on the other side of this argument is that will only work if there is enough funding to divide amongst those areas that need it most, which right now, according to a lot of CAF members that we spoke to throughout the field school is just not the case. So they actually, the, the funding has to be there. Whether or not that represents 2% of GDP for Canada, I'm not able to speak to. However, there does seem to be a need for more to be able to cover all of the basis that Canada wants to improve its army in. So I think that that is a, a crucial side of this argument that might be missing from the Canadian political perspective that could be enhanced by the, the CAF perspective. In your opinion, how important is it actually for candidates to reach that 2% GDP target for military spending? Excellent question. And that's uh, the million dollar question there. I think that we need enough fund. The Canadian Armed Forces needs enough funding to do its job, whether it is 2%, whether it is 3%, whether it is 1.5%. And I think as the, the Canadian Armed Forces is becoming more relevant in Canadian society now, with the increase of climate-related disasters that has often required additional Canadian Armed Forces members to assist with those domestic operations, as well as the increasing geopolitical climate. The question is that right now, do we do Canadian Armed Forces need more funding? And I think the answer clearly is yes. Whether that is 2% is the million dollar question. However, right now, the current funding for the Canadian Armed Forces feels that it's not adequate. And I think the troops are feeling it, you know, from my experience in Camp Adagi, as well as my experience with the Canadian Armed Forces personally, I feel a lot of the thoughts are being spread around among the troops is whether or not we feel adequately supported by the Canadian government. The common idea on that is that they, they could be doing a lot better. Yeah, and if I can just build off of basically what Azali just said, you know, I think the Canadian Armed Forces needs enough defense spending to fulfill its commitment, right? So, there needs to be enough funding to get the resources to get the job that we have already committed to. So if Canada is seeking to increase its commitments um, abroad, then we need enough resources uh, to do those efficiently and effectively. However, Xander, uh, if I can kind of talk in the perspective on the other side of the coin, I can understand Canada's and Canadians' 
hesitation towards increasing funding. You know, in Canada, we are experiencing a housing crisis. We are experiencing a healthcare crisis. We're experiencing an inflation crisis. I can see the perspective. I can see the hesitation of increasing 2%. I understand that a lot of the funding that would have gone to the Canadian Armed Forces uh, would be obviously taken away from other social policies and social departments within Canada. I understand that defense and security is only a portion of the duty of Canada. And there are other focuses that, you know, need to be focused on at the moment. And I, I can, as a Canadian outside, as a reservist, as a civilian outside of, um, outside of my job in the Navy, I can see that I can, I also experience that pain as well. However, like Mackenzie said, we just want to be capable and supported enough to do our job and that the government of the day has to make tough decisions and those decisions have to reflect on the political climate of what what's happening today. That's interesting. Couldn't somebody say if they were to perhaps also defend not reaching that 2% goal yet, say, look, we've already talked a bit about allocation, but allocation regarding cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and space isn't presently what counts as military spending. But Canada has been lobbying to try to change that. Couldn't somebody say, look, Canada has its spending in the right places, but right now we're focusing on a future-based approach where we're looking to the future of security, whether that be artificial intelligence, cybersecurity and cyber attacks, and space in general. Couldn't somebody reasonably defend Canada this way? Just to touch on that, I think the perspective that we did hear a lot during the field school was that Canada's failure to meet that 2% goal does make it hard for Canada to bring any demands to the table. It does seem rather rich um, when Canada asks for more spending or different goals for NATO when they are not meeting the same goal as other countries. And we've discussed that there are reasons for this, that Canada doesn't necessarily see itself as comparable to nations within NATO that do meet that 2% goal in terms of economy, in terms of domestic spending. But even though allocation may be a big issue for Canada, especially as we look to the future, bringing those issues to the table becomes increasingly unfeasible when we don't contribute to that table in the first place, perhaps. Yeah, and, and if I could, Xander, to touch on that last part of your question of whether or not investing in the future is the best way or the most effective way for security improvement. And I think that if this had been done from the very beginning, and defense spending has always had always been this steady and stable force and always had been this strong um, source of planning, then yeah, maybe. However, at the moment, if Canada is more focused on the future than the present, although it, it's, it would be obviously a very, very smart plan to anticipate the future and future security threats, it is also crucial to address those security threats as they happen. I mean, NATO, one of NATO's core tasks is crisis management, and we are in crisis right now, whether that's the war raging on the eastern flank, or if it's, if it's climate change. I think that there has to be this balance between, yeah, investing in the future and preventing, focusing on that other aspect of NATO core missions of deterrence and defense, but there also has to be that level of spending on crisis management in the present too. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for your opinions. 
Unfortunately, we're running low on time, so we will have to move on to the next segment. And we will be discussing the second topic, which is how does the culture within the Canadian Armed Forces inform Canada's role and image within NATO? The Canadian Armed Forces is quite unique, Xander, um, because the Canadian Armed Forces, what it does is strives to represent and reflect Canadian society as a whole. So Canada is very fortunate as being one of the most diverse countries in the world. That means that we have one of the most diverse forces in the world. From my personal experiences, myself, I'm from Malaysia originally, so I immigrated here when I was quite young. And it wasn't uncommon for me to meet other people from different parts of the world, uh, you know, different, different backgrounds, different heritage. So I think Canada's unique position in being a very diverse force contributes a lot to NATO as the alliance as well, as it provides a lot more perspectives. Um, yeah, Xander. So kind of what Azali said, you know, Canada is a pretty diverse country. And so we're working towards, or the Canadian forces is working towards, you know, reflecting society in that regard. So, you know, speaking for, or I guess my experience at the college is we, we really do work to make it really inclusive and, and incorporate different different cultures and different celebrations within those cultures and, and really kind of integrate everyone and immerse them in that diversified culture to essentially reflect society. Okay, well, thank you for uh, some brief thoughts. So first of all, a very important thing for our discussion is probably understanding what the actual culture of the Canadian Armed Forces is. And we got some of that from some of the members from Ruby's Answers. But what would you say the culture actually is within the CAP? And what are the key values or principles that define it? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question, Xander. I think, you know, from my perspective, I think that the Canadian Armed Forces currently are going in, I guess it, it could be characterized by almost like a transitional phase. You know, I think the forces itself for a while were pretty outdated, you know, compared to um, society and, and societal values. So I think we're kind of in a in a period right now where we have the new generation kind of entering the forces, kind of trying to merge and work alongside, you know, the older generations who both, I guess, of these groups of people have these different values and, and different priorities, different ways of communicating, um, all those kinds of things. So I think right now it's it's an important transition phase, you know, trying to work with one another um, while also, you know, modifying and I guess updating the overall culture for it to match societal values that that have um, essentially you know progressed and evolved over time. Transitionary is a, an excellent word of what, which I would also use to describe the Canadian forces at the moment. So I think like Mackenzie said you want a Canadian forces that kind of represents Canada and Canada society now and while we do appreciate the older generation and their immense amount of knowledge that they're able to pass down to to newer generations is that yes we, we do want to transition to a new a new phase of what defense and security looks like and in that transition phase you're going to have bumps and hiccups on the road but at the end of the day the intent of modernizing the Canadian forces is there as we all have been keeping up with the news we've seen that you know, the Canadian Armed Forces still has a long way in making that journey to the new, to the Canadian Armed Forces that we want today. But transitionary is a really good word to describe. So 
yeah, like the the Canadian Forces culture, while right now we're starting to slowly build back better and, you know, develop new procedures and policies, there's still a lot of work that has to be done. Okay, thank you very much. And for the non-CAF members we have here, Alexa and Piper, you know, what did you interpret the CAF culture to be from a perspective of somebody who isn't within the Canadian Armed Forces? Um, just to touch on that from a civilian perspective, I think what civilians see is really nothing at all. Um, and this is sort of fortified by the fact that a lot of Canadians aren't really familiar with the CAF or how it operates. And so it becomes this very opaque idea. Um, and I think there's no question that the CAF sees the value in modernizing and diversifying its forces and approach. We heard that very keenly during the field school. But the question really remains how long they need for this progress and if it's feasible to fill recruitment with groups that have been historically alienated by militaries. Um, it's a hard history to overstep and you hear a lot of baffled takes from recruiters on the field school as to why the recruitment isn't working towards diversified groups. Um, and I think from a civilian perspective, I think that historical understanding and what you hear in the news of sort of these scandals, I suppose you would call them, that pop up repeatedly, um, I think it makes a bit of um, it makes it a bit of a challenge to um, see how this diversified approach is working within the CAF, even though um, there is definitely a will towards it that we heard during the field school. Okay, well, thank you very much, everybody. And for the next question, I'd like to ask you, it's, do you think that internal issues like sexual misconduct, generational divides, and, you know, things of that nature, reduce our operational effectiveness? Although I can't speak to this as a, a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, Xander, I think that from what I gathered on the trip, there's no way that any issues like sexual misconduct and inequality and exclusivity would not impact the interoperability and effectiveness of the force. If you have these groups that are internally divided and internally in conflict and can't work together, we saw how important teamwork was. A major part of the military is teamwork and working very closely with your co-members. So without that tight-knit community that has been divided by issues of sexual misconduct. It just doesn't seem like it could be as an effective force as it as it could. Just to add another um, civilian perspective to this, um, I wanted to touch on the fact that unit cohesion is a very loaded topic historically, um, especially when we ask ourselves why culture problems in the CAF, like sexual misconduct or diversity, are being measured against effectiveness um, instead of sort of the wholesale merit of them. There's an article that was recommended to me at SHAPE uh, during the field school, which is titled Women in the Canadian Armed Forces, Why an Increase in Women Can Increase Operational Effectiveness. And I think what we should be asking ourselves, um, especially when talking about effectiveness and these culture problems is, you know, does the end justify the means? And in that, I mean, you know, these are worthy goals, improving the culture, increasing women, increasing um, diversity in the CAF. But the way we go about achieving it is not necessarily so noble. And I think it really does allow for some cynicism within, you know, a civilian perspective that what you hear is effectiveness being pushed as the reason this is being done instead of, once again, the merit of it on its own. Awesome. And for Canadian Armed Forces members, any perspectives, any opinions on if internal issues do impact and reduce our operational effectiveness? 
or do you think that this is the wrong question to ask? Uh, yeah, Xander. So I think it was mentioned earlier, generational gaps. And I think that generational gaps, they do play a significant role in you know the overall effectiveness and interoperability of the CAF. I think the biggest part in resolving that is understanding these generational gaps. So, you know, when you're working with someone who has been in the forces for, you know, 10 to 20 years, they were, I guess, trained a different way than you have been, right? So the values that were imposed onto them and and embedded into them is different than the ones that are embedded onto you or into the newer generation. I think just under understanding the overall generational gap and acknowledging that it is present, you know, when you're working as a team. And like Piper said, teamwork is is a major um, is a crucial part in the forces and it plays a major role. And without it, you can't function as effectively or effectively at all, really. Just to add what Mackenzie said just now, another foundational component of the Canadian Armed Forces besides teamwork is confidence and trust. And with the sexual misconduct allegations, that really ruins our confidence and our trust within the leadership team and the leadership hierarchy. So given the nature of the Canadian Armed Forces, we are placed in positions where our lives could very well be on the line. So there is that inherent trust and that inherent confidence in our leaders, in our officers. So to have those sexual misconduct allegations really does erode trust within the Canadian Armed Forces. However, I, I do believe that systemic changes takes a long time. And I'm glad we are having that those conversations to, to recognize that you know, the culture that we have needs to change within the Canadian Armed Forces. The Canadian Armed Forces does a lot to, you know, increase diversity, um, increase perspectives, increase the troop size from different areas around the world. We do a lot to increase diversity, but I can speak about this all I want, but as a minority myself, there are multiple occasions where I've, I've been in rooms where I might be the only person of color in that room. So, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but I'm glad we're having that conversation and I can see that start. Thank you very much, everybody, for your perspectives. And actually, I'd like to jump on something that Alexa said that I found interesting. This idea that, you know, is measuring the inclusivity of the CAF against interoperability and effectiveness, you know, is it the right thing to do? You know, maybe the purpose of a military, one might say, is, after all, for security and defense. So we're just focusing on the means here and, and the ends. But... You know, somebody else might also say, you know, maybe we should care about inclusive inclusivity just for inclusivity. Are there any perspectives on that? Should the Canadian Armed Forces focus on these sorts of issues for the purpose of the issues themselves or for the ends that they are trying to accomplish? From from a civilian's perspective, and, and what I've gathered is that trying to address issues because of what they could bring in the future is not always the best way to go about things, especially when you're viewing people as a means to this end that you're trying to achieve. So it's not the same thing as, as buying new equipment is going to enhance your effectiveness overall. It's whether treating these people with respect is going to enhance your effectiveness overall, which is a very different thing. And so viewing people as a means obviously has problematic connotations. Um, I just wanted to add, because I did bring this up, that effectiveness is a flexible well, ideology in the military. It's important to consider that effectiveness has been used in the inverse manner in the past, especially when it was argued that keeping women out of certain units 
was to ensure that those units could be effective and that everybody saw eye to eye and was coming from the same place and that, you know, women would just not fit into the culture there. So when we're using effectiveness as a metric, it's important to consider that it can be used to, I guess, serve the ends of diversity or it can be used to serve the ends of exclusion. It just depends on really the narrative you attach to it. And while, of course, the narrative we're seeing now is much, much better, its effectiveness is in and of itself not a foolproof argument for why we should be seeking diversity, seeking to improve the culture. It can really go either way. And I think when you attach these values that can stand on their own to these concepts that, you know, really can serve any political or ideological lens, then you really run into some risks, um, especially for the future of how we'd like to see these diversification efforts play out. All right. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for your opinions. So the big question I think that people are asking themselves if they're listening in is, should internal issues that are affecting the Canadian Armed Forces actually affect how other states see us in NATO? If I could just speak to something that we heard at both Shape and Camp Adagi, it's that if Canada is having these problems and trying to fix them, we're already probably leaps and bounds ahead of certain other militaries within NATO who simply haven't even begun the process of acknowledging these faults or areas of improvement. So if it does impact the way that Canada interacts with NATO or the way that Canada is seen, we're certainly not the only ones. Um, And I think that's important to consider as we talk about Canada and NATO and these sort of interacting perspectives more generally. Yeah, other allies will see that we are experiencing domestic issues ourselves. However, any military organization or any military institution will have internal conflict or problems. But it's how the military institution reacts to those problems that really speaks volumes as to how a military can adapt to the challenges that it faces. So I hope that our allies can recognize that Canada is in that drive to become a better, more unified Canadian armed forces that that's what makes us a reliable partner. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody, for your opinions. And one thing I am wondering is, are there any aspects of the Canadian Armed Forces culture that you think aligns particularly well with NATO's values and objectives? And do you think this impacts Canada's leadership role within the alliance? I think the Canadian Armed Forces today is becoming, you know, increasingly more inclusive and and diversified. So I think our value in our diversity it serves as, as being pretty beneficial, um, you know, when we look at the alliance and the perception that other NATO members have of Canada um, and their role in the alliance, you know, our value of diversity and and inclusivity and or I guess increased inclusivity. It serves a purpose, you know, within the alliance and shows that, you know, Canada has acknowledged the lack of inclusivity, if you will, beforehand in the forces. So now with the CAF kind of moving towards increasing that um, diversity and inclusivity, um, it's being acknowledged, you know, worldwide. And I think that plays a very important role. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for your perspectives, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you found this as informative as we have. Thank you for listening to this special Spotlight edition of The Field Report, and stay tuned for more to come. This episode of The Field Report was hosted by Xander Van Asprin, joined by Azali Adam, Piper Lane, Alexa Meyerly, and Mackenzie Naus. The Spotlight series is coordinated by Hannah Christensen, Amy Topshi, and Lauren Mannix. Our producers are Morgan Cowley and Solomon Rogers, who also created our theme song. 
The Field Report is part of the CDSN Podcast Network, and we thank them for their support. On behalf of the NATO Field School, thanks for listening, and we'll see you here next time.